Three flashing diamonds fell down from the tree to the turf. The small man stooped to pick them up, and when he looked up again, the green cage of the tree was emptied of its silver bird. Welcome to Pints with Chesterton, a podcast where two millennial women dive into the wonderful and whimsical works of Gilbert Keith Chesterton. I'm Grace. And I'm Marie. On today's episode, we are discussing one of G.K. Chesterton's Father Brown mysteries, The Flying Stars, which is part of the collection, The Innocence of Father Brown. Grace, how are you today? I'm doing good. A little tired. Lots of stuff going on this week, last week of school, as we're recording this before Christmas. But uh, I'm really excited to talk about this story because this is one of my favorites. Yes, agreed. This How is are one you? of his most whimsical stories, and I love the artistry of it, um, of this crime. I'm doing well. It was a busy week. Work is really, really crazy for me before Christmas because we take time off at Christmas and New Year. So we pre-record a bunch of um, mm. shows for Catholic Answers Live and for our podcasts. Um, so we do a lot of work in the first few weeks of December, but it's actually been really fun. I like when it's busy. I think I do better work when I'm busy just because it keeps me going from one thing to the next. And so that's definitely true. I relate to that a lot. What are you drinking today? That doesn't I'm look drinking, like a Guinness. No, it's not. It's tea and it's such good tea and I got it from you. So <laughs> it, was, it was so great. I will talk about it later when we do our gratitude journal. Okay, but awesome. It's very delicious. It's a lemon ginger tea with honey. Yeah, I'm having hibiscus tea today. Mm. All right. Well, let's jump into it. Cool. In this installment of Father Brown, we hear of Flambeau's last and most clever burglary. In fact, the narrator begins by quoting Flambeau at length, as he apparently often recounted the story in his moral old age. The story begins at a typical upper-middle-class home on Boxing Day, where Father Brown has been invited to spend Christmas with a local family whose daughter is a member of his church. The daughter's godfather, who has just come to visit, is a rich and distinguished foreigner who has just given her a Christmas gift of three famed diamonds called the Flying Stars, on account of them being stolen so many times before. She is delighted by the gift, even though she is in love with her young socialist neighbor, who looks upon the extravagantly wealthy gift giver with contempt and boasts of being pro-burglary towards rich people like him. The girl has also recently lost her mother, and her uncle has just come from Canada to pay his respects. In a frenzy of love and holiday spirit, the group determines to put on a harlequinade pantomime in which the girl will play Columbine, her uncle will play Harlequin, her father will play Pantaloon, and her neighbor will play the clown. In preparations for the play, the uncle attempts to put a donkey tail onto the girl's godfather, stealthily stealing the diamonds from his pocket. When they realize the diamonds are gone, it's up to Father Brown to run after the burglar. Excellent. And the hunt is afoot. (laughs) So great. This story is so funny. His descriptions, I just feel like, I mean, his his descriptions are always so good, but there's so much good like alliteration and just the whole scene is just silly and goofy and funny. And even before the pantomime, his descriptions are really hilarious because he describes Ruby coming out into her garden 
um, which is surrounded by a wall, and then it says there's a forest beyond. And he describes her as looking like a little waddling bear because <laughs> she's so wrapped up in fur coats because it's the winter. And I love that. And then um, with her godfather, Leopold, he's it's described as him being unwrapped from like rugs and furs and scarves and eventually he emerges from from his vehicle uh but he's put the spirit of theater from the beginning in this story yeah when i read that part about sir leopold being unwrapped from his car i didn't realize that it was him that was first being unwrapped i thought that these were all of the extravagant gifts that he had brought his goddaughter you know because it lists like all these furs and scarves and like all this stuff and i was like oh gosh all these christmas presents that he's bringing her and then it was like unwrapped one by one till they revealed something resembling the human form (laughs) i was like oh wait it's him he was wrapped up in all these things that's so funny i love that we're talking about this story right now because at the beginning of the story, Flambeau talks about how this is his most beautiful crime, mm-hmm. which is hilarious. And, he, like, obviously, he's repented at this point. And so, as he's telling it, he can look fondly back on it. Yeah. Um, but also, he says he likes to try to commit his crimes uh, as per the season. Mm-hmm. And so, he is committing this crime because he wants it to be a Christmas crime, a cheery, cozy, English middle-class crime. And so we're releasing this episode in the 12 days of Christmas. And Mm -hmm. so it's very fitting for us to be reading a Christmas crime story um, (laughs) during this time. And one that has such a nice ending. Mm -hmm. That particular line that you just read is so funny in the audible... Um, version because he's speaking as Flambeau with this French accent that's like sort of over the top (laughs) and it's just it's so funny the way he says it with all the alliteration of the C's and the CH's you know yeah I'm of Charles Dickens (laughs) good he says it's his most beautiful crime and I also think it's probably his most ingenious crime that we've heard about so far mm-hmm. um, because he does have a French accent. He's a, mm-hmm. he's a Frenchman and he is successfully pulling off a French Canadian slash American mm-hmm. accent um, yep. and pulling off the fake role of Ruby's uncle. And so I, I think we see his excellent acting abilities, not just in the Harlequinade, uh, but also just in his behavior with this family from the beginning. Oh, absolutely. I, I have to say something sad before we continue with this story. I watched the BBC One version of this um, story because I knew we were going to be discussing it. Uh-huh. And I was so disappointed. Not surprised, unfortunately. I should have known. I read the reviews and they were all pretty negative, but Mm -hmm. I thought maybe it's not so bad. They changed the story completely to involve a murder of of Ruby's mother. They make these salacious characters who really don't embody the spirit of how Chesterton Mm -hmm. wrote. And then Father Brown himself feels like a priest kind of stuck into the 1980s or something and it doesn't capture his humility or his smallness or his quietness Mm. they sort of just make him a detective yeah 
and a detective first, a priest second. And I think that was a mistake. I was a little disappointed. I, I thought it would be more fun than that. Also, the crime makes more sense in the way that Chesterton wrote it. Right. Yeah, I think everything does. And from what I've seen of the most recent Father Brown series on the BBC, I guess it's the same one. Um, they just, it seems to be in some way, like silly where it shouldn't be and serious where it shouldn't be. You know, yeah. it seems like these characters who are really silly and frivolous are made to be more serious and scary or something. Yeah. And then the characters that are meant to be more serious just are kind of silly and it comes off as almost just cheap or it something. Kind of, yeah, you know? it fell flat for me. It was, yeah. it was darker and just less charming. Right. Yeah. And, and this, you know, we said from the beginning that these stories are meant to be comedies. I mean, there's, there's a serious aspect to them because they are crime stories, you know, yeah. um, but they're meant to be comic. And so when you take Absolutely. that away, it just doesn't make any sense anymore. And you really do have to change a lot of things around, you know? Yeah. Okay. Well, let's get into the crime. Flumbo starts out this story and our narrator tells us that it hardly makes sense from the inside, from Flumbo's, um, point of view but it doesn't make sense at all from an outside point of view but that's how we have to see it so then the narrator begins telling us this story um once again we see how important setting the tone of the story is for chesterton he does describe a beautiful home and garden and um there's sort of an air of I don't know, like a lack of busyness amongst mm -hmm. the characters. They're all just spending time together and they're not really accomplishing anything too um too great. They're just they're just spending time together. And honestly, that's what families do at Christmas a lot of the time. So perhaps that's why. But you kind of get this feeling that they are comfortable. And so then we start meeting all of the characters and I think each character has a very strong description of them. There's nobody who's a plain character. Mm -hmm. And so we have um, we have Ruby, who comes across as a little bear, but lovable and beautiful. And then we have the godfather, who, as we said, is unwrapped from all his furs. We have James <laughs> kind Blount. Kind of over the top. Yeah. James Blount, who is also over the top, but in a different way. He's kind of reminds me of a golden retriever. <laughs> um, and then... Her father, Ruby's father, the colonel, who is serious and hardly says any words throughout the entire story. Um, and who else do we meet? Mr. Crook. Mr. The, Crook. Uh, He's important. The socialist. <laughs> yes. And then we meet a socialist. He's described yeah, as like thin and he uses that word he likes, angular. Yes. Um, and kind and of sa almost sallow or something. Yeah, the description of Crook, maybe we should get into that for a minute because I'm curious about what Chesterton is trying to say about socialism through mm -hmm. this story. And I, I don't really know if I have the right ideas about it, but the description of Crook, he appears on the wall, this very, very high garden wall, as Ruby is walking out to take in the, the sunset view, it sounds like. And he's going to jump down and you have this whole exchange. And when I first read this, she says, don't jump Mr. Crook. And you think, oh, there's like a burglar a up on the <laughs> yeah. wall. And, yeah. um, and she's worried for him. And I, but it kind of betrays the sweetness of this character uh -huh. that you get the feeling that she would care for any person who was trying to jump down from this wall. That's true. Um, yeah. But it says that 
he only took care with his tie and he was wearing this like brilliant red tie. It says an aggressive red tie. An aggressive red yeah. tie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which I think is definitely purposeful on Chesterton's part. <laughs> yeah. I feel like his aggressive red tie is symbolic of his socialism. <laughs> right, right. And it's, yeah. And so the rest of him isn't all, you know, what he's wearing is not all that noticeable. But mm-hmm. um, when we meet Crook, it's, so clear that he really cares for ruby right and we get into this conversation about the right side of the wall and the wrong side of the wall and there's a romantic moment where basically he jumps down and she says well which side of the wall is the right one and he says whichever side you're on Mm -hmm. Um, and i kind of had this realization because we start out the story with this exchange between two people two young people who love each other and then we end the story with flambeau up up near the same wall he's in the tree but he's about to go over the wall Mm. and i had this thought that on one side of the wall is love and goodness and beauty and you can come into it and then on the other side of the wall is loneliness and crime Mm. and the downward descent into evil that father brown talks about later in the story we'll talk about this more at the end as we get to the end of the story but i think that argument is is the largest motivation for flumbo to leave the diamonds and go along his way repenting having a new life i think the argument about love and about that loneliness is the thing that convinces him the most Absolutely. The character of Mr. Crook, it's funny, his name being Crook, Chesterton is obviously, I think it's sort of a double play on the word that like he is poking fun at his socialism, um, I think in that, but, you know, believing that everything should be taken and given to those who have not. When we get to Man Alive, which we're going to read next, there's a part in that book where he speaks in similar terms. But then also this young guy is like who the crime is about to be pinned on before they realize that it's Flambeau um, who is posing as the uncle. Um, He's the one who the rest of Ruby's family is kind of looking down upon as a crook, you know, and they see him as this, you know, guy who's not good enough for their daughter and goddaughter and yeah. Whatever else. Um, and well, I think the, there's something that Chesterton, even though he would disagree with his politics, I think there's a sort of, of a likable character, character, you know, um, that he had he had good things to say about him as a person too. There's good and bad, and like how do we get down to the roots of people's ideas, and like why do they end up, you know, choosing to be in this political party or that political party or whatever else and like what where is that coming from and is it all bad if even if we disagree with their conclusions and you know things like that so Mm -hmm. I think Chesterton has a lot to say about that yeah I think that he recognizes that Mr. Crook has good intentions Mm -hmm. I mean even when at the beginning of the story when they're discussing the definition of socialism Mm -hmm. um, you know Crook doesn't believe that Leopold the godfather has uh, presented socialism in a very honest light. Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, he just believes that chimney sweeps should be paid for what they, you know, that they should be paid for what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, That's one of my and, favorite exchanges. Can I actually read through? Yeah, yeah. Let's that. read that out to everybody. Yeah. Um, 
Ruby is getting mad at him because he starts talking socialism and she can't think of the word for it. Um, and she says, what do you call a man who wants to embrace the chimney sweep? And then Father Brown says, a saint, <laughs> which I just love. <laughs> I love it too. Um, and then it says, I think said Sir Leopold with a supercilious smile that Ruby means a socialist. A radical does not mean a man who lives on radishes, remarked Crook with some impatience. And a conservative does not mean a man who preserves jam. Neither, I assure you, does a socialist mean a man who desires a social evening with the chimney sweep. A socialist means that a man who wants means a man who wants all the chimneys swept and all the chimney sweeps paid for it, but who won't allow you, put in the priest in a low voice, to own your own soot. <laughs> and I yeah. like you know, and then after that, the exchange continues um, with Crook almost like kind of interested in that and being like, would somebody want to own their own soot? And then Father Brown mentions using it as a trick at a Christmas party before with a bunch of children, which is interesting because that's yeah. what they go on to do right, for the right. rest of the evening. That exchange is so important because Chesterton is saying... I see this goodness in Crook. And you can even see in the way that his interest is piqued by what Father Brown has said that he's not a bad person. No, yeah. He's trying to think of ways to make the world better. And mm -hmm. honestly, I think a lot of people, or most people even, are they believe that their way of doing things will make something, will make everything a little bit better. Mm -hmm. But he's also drawing attention to the flaws of socialism, which is that. It takes away people's freedom, mm. and mm. it's it, there's there's the slavery of people not being taken care of and people not being compensated for their work, and then there's also the slavery of not being able to own yourself or any any of your own things or your property. But as we've talked about in previous episodes, Gilbert had a love for the poor, mm -hmm. and he wanted people to take care of the poor and so i can i can understand why he wouldn't paint a socialist in a completely bad light oh yeah Just absolutely you, not yeah you can you can't paint most people in mm -hmm. a in a bad light completely most people are good as well as as evil right and i think he also is you know with with his extravagant descriptions of like sir leopold fisher who is clearly um someone who is benefiting from the more capitalist system you know yeah. um he's kind of poking fun at, at him as well with his sort of stiff self-importance and his yeah. you know extravagance and clothing and you know jewels and all these things that he has and whatever um he clearly is not you know, a huge fan necessarily of his philosophy of life or economics either. But yet here he is enjoying Christmas in this home, you know, of this right. wealthy middle-class family. And he's benefiting um, from it as well. Yeah. And he's, he's friends with these people, you know, and he's yeah. sharing this, this holiday with them and enjoying their company and he can find all these good things in them and find points of agreement and, mm. um, and respect even without necessarily, um, putting himself in either of those categories. Yeah. You know? And we kind of see the flaw in socialism too, in what Crook says when he says, uh, it's a socialist is not a person who wants to spend a social evening with the chimney sweep. Right. And Father Brown is slash a, Chesterton would. Yes. <laughs> yeah. A hundred percent. We see Father Brown 
spending lots of times with the lowest of the low. And so not that chimney sweeps were the lowest of the low, but they didn't make a whole lot of money. So they Mm -hmm. were poor. Yeah. Um, Okay. So James Blount, the uncle, quote unquote uncle, who we find out later is Flambeau, showed up to the house after the mother passed away just a week too late to actually meet her in in person, which is a an important detail. And James gets everyone excited to act out a pantomime. Basically, it's a play where you are only acting and you have music playing over it. There are no spoken words. They all sort of get excited and in, in, in a frenzy, as Grace wrote in our summary. They set set the parts for the play and Nearly everyone wants to participate, except, of course, Leopold (laughs) wants to sit and watch. He's sort of a grumpy old man. And um, in the midst of all of this, uh, while they're making the preparations for the pantomime, uh, Flambeau, or James Blount, goes to try to put a donkey tail on Leopold and at that time, we figure out later, steals the diamonds from him. The pantomime is ingenious. Mm-hmm. Well, I really enjoyed the descriptions of it, and I love how he chose to commit a crime in such a way that gave the family so much cheer. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. I didn't think of that. I mean, he created this wonderful evening for them, and mm-hmm. they all had such a fun time. Even the more stoic characters in the story enjoyed it to a point. So he, James Blount receives a note saying that a friend needs to come see him, which is... <laughs> actually a tip that a policeman is coming and in the midst of the the pantomime when it actually begins um this policeman arrives and he is playing the dead man perfectly well <laughs> right um, oh gosh the description is so funny it was that the strange actor gave the celebrated imitation of a dead man of which the fame still lingers around putney <laughs> which is hilarious because he might as well have been a dead man yeah <laughs> What was it? Chloroform? <laughs> yeah, he used chloroform on him. Why do you think that Flambeau chose to steal the diamonds in such a way as complex as this? I mean, he could have just ambushed Leopold on the way to the house and stolen them that way and gotten away, probably. Right. I think I think he tells us in the very beginning when he's talking about, you know always wanting to be literary about his crimes, you know, always wanting to be this artist, this artiste, you know, Father Brown says, says later, um, he tells him when he's in the tree, he's like, you know, you could have done it in so many different ways. You could have done this, you could have done that. Um, but you are a poet. That's what he says. (laughs) So he's, he really does see himself as this, this poet and almost like a comic as well, which is just so funny and interesting. It seems like he gets so much enjoyment out of committing the crime this way mm-hmm. that he almost did it as much for his own pleasure as he did to get away with the crime. Right. And I think that that reveals something about his character that allows him to be so redeemable um, mm-hmm. that the thing that he really enjoys is not really like stealing it for the sake of the thing that he's stealing, but really for the for the challenge. You know, like he, I think he delights in something being challenging and something being artistic, like going after something that is difficult. Father Brown just points out 
you know, to him that he does have a lot of talent. He does have a lot of gifts. Um, Father Brown himself bursts out laughing when he realizes what happened yes. um, and then stops himself because it's not proper <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> to laugh at a crime, you know, but he knows who it is and he realizes what's just happened and he sees so much good in Flambeau that he's able to sort of point that out to him and, and call him to shift his focus in life and continue to use his gifts in ways that are not evil, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely the case. I want to actually move to the end of the story, which is actually, you know, a significant chunk of the story where he speaks to Flambeau um, and we can get into that portion um, of the story that deals with repentance and deals with what the moral compass of this man actually is because i think it's as you said very telling that he still does have honor and youth and goodness i think he says in him uh, father mm -hmm. brown tells him that after he steals the diamonds we know that he's basically as nimble as an acrobat and he gets up into the tree to escape the garden and father brown uh, runs after him as soon as he can and he said, this is one of my favorite um, lines of the story. He says, Flambeau, you really look like a flying star, but that always means a falling star at last. Great image. <laughs> Great image. Yeah. And the reason he says that is because he's covered in basically uh, costume jewelry for mm -hmm. his part of the Harlequin in, in the play. Um, the so. description is so beautiful, too, when he describes him in the garden, in the tree, other immortal shrubs showed against sapphire sky and silver moon, even in that midwinter, warm colors as of the south. The green gaiety of the waving laurels, the rich purple indigo of the night, the moon like a monstrous crystal, made an almost irresponsibly romantic picture. And among the top branches of the garden trees, a strange figure is climbing, who looks not so much romantic as impossible. He sparkles from head to heel as if clad in ten million moons. The real moon catches him at every moment and sets a new inch of him on fire. Just such beautiful descriptions. I love how he describes the garden and flambeau and the sky above as if he's weaving a tapestry here at the end and including all of these beautiful colors, which I think he does this the most in this story that we've, um, from the ones that we've discussed, he mm -hmm. uses a lot um a lot of rich imagery in this mm -hmm. story and this is kind of what I was trying to get at earlier is that I felt like the tv show that presented this episode on mm -hmm. on BBC didn't capture this romantic artistic almost like the goodness of mm -hmm. of these scenes um yeah. it only was able to capture what I think most movies and TV re revert to, which is the dark, you yeah. know, the darkness and the crime. And so it was, it's really refreshing actually to see him. He describes this romantic scene with this impossible figure and right. he can escape at any moment. Grace, did you notice that he says it's, it was almost as if there was a long invisible leash, which was keeping him in the tree and I thought that was such a oh, nice reference to the quote yes. you read from the queer feet 
Right. Which is, you know, he's also speaking to Flambeau in that story. And so it's the definitely the catching, the catching of the thief by the invisible line at a twitch of the thread. He could yeah, I didn't notice that. The that's a great connection. Yeah. yeah. I'm reading in this annotated version that I have. Um, it talks about this article or this essay that was written by William Sheik, I think, S-C-H-E-I-C-K, mm-hmm. um, in the Chesterton Review in 1977-78. Um, and it says, it says that he persuasively maintains that G.K., like Shakespeare and Dickens, likes to think of life as a fantastic, dreamlike harlequinade taking place in a perpetual gloaming, a mix of light and darkness that symbolizes our ignorance of the play's meaning and the fact that the actors, are, the actors too, are souls in a twilight realm midway between beast and angel. So he kind of sees them just kind of the whole world in this like twilight moment of mysteriousness and you know sparkling I don't know like beauty and confusion but not a bad confusion I don't know that there's this there's something that we don't quite understand about the mystery and yet we're in the midst of it you know yeah um and I I think that that Chesterton tried to capture that uh, feeling of being a player in in the Harlequinade by holding plays at his home and writing plays and writing that's so true and letting his imagination run with these things um what were your thoughts on the line where father brown says to flambeau men may keep a certain level of good but no man has ever been able to keep on one level of evil i think there's a very real slippery slope um when it comes to evil you know as soon as we as soon as we make excuses um, and live by the idea that the ends justify the means, um, we tend to very quickly find ourselves beyond what we had originally intended to do in terms of evil. Um, and we're having to make up for all the ways that it's maybe gone wrong or not gone the way that we saw it in our minds. And so we keep committing more and more sins in order to cover our tracks and cover the things that didn't work and um I just I feel like we can all just see it in our own lives with little things that we do you know and we think oh this isn't a big deal that's not a big deal but then before we know it um it's leading us to much worse things you know yeah um so I definitely thought that was true it sort of put to mind the reality that scripture presents us Mm -hmm. that if we're not for the father we're against him and when christ tells his um disciples when when his disciples come to him and say you know there were these men casting out demons in your name but they they weren't with us so you know we basically we shut them down Mm -hmm. christ says whoever you know whoever does these things in my name is with us like whoever is with us whoever is for god it's hard because we see in ourselves good and bad, right? Like all of us, unless you're a saint, in which case I want to <laughs> meet you and spend some time with you. But most of us are are sinning, are working on patterns of sin, are, are trying to become holier each day. And so we see within ourselves the the ability to do good and the ability to do evil. And so I think at least for myself, I make some sort of excuse like, well, I can be for God and still 
be dealing with these things over here. And absolutely, I mean, I'm baptized. I'm a Christian. God has um, adopted me as a daughter. I am his. But Mm -hmm. as I continue to choose sin, I'm not choosing him. It's like a one or the other thing. Every time we decide to sin, every time we choose something evil over something good, we're, we're turning our back on God. Mm-hmm. And so Father Brown is, is saying to Flambeau, you are, are playing with a fine line here. You're mm-hmm. having fun. I mean, really, he's having fun. Yeah. He's committing these wonderful, whimsical crimes, and right. he's doing it in seasons, Grace. Like, yeah. he planned a Christmas crime because <laughs> that made him happy. It was a cozy, cheery it, Christmas yeah. crime. <laughs> It wasn't about like the money that he could make from stealing these diamonds. It was about, as you said, the challenge and all of that. Right. And so he's saying, you know, once you open this door and once you continue to say, well, I can, I can still be good, but I can do these things. Mm-hmm. We're really walking a fine line. Mm-hmm. And at some point in our life, we have to have this dramatic conversion where we say, I'm only choosing good. Like right. good is what I'm striving for in my life. And I can't, I'm not being honest with myself if right. I am also doing evil. I think Father Brown's um, genius in speaking to Fombo is in pointing out the real harm that he's actually doing, which isn't stealing the the diamonds outright, but actually pinning it without meaning to necessarily on the you know young socialist neighbor who's in love with ruby and her whole family is already against him because of his political views because he's young and they think that he's silly and you know whatever else and so if if they think that he has stolen these diamonds they're absolutely never going to allow him to be with ruby and so and father brown sees that and points that out to flambeau because he sees that it's something that flambeau might be able to actually relate to and that he he sees he has some sort of heart um, mm-hmm. you know, some sort of, of whimsy and would understand love, you know, that, um, yeah, or like romance, you know, that he would want to protect that, that kid, you know? Um, and so I think in pointing out that he's showing that sometimes we don't even see the evil that w- our sins is, is causing, you know, our sins are causing like towards other people. Um, sometimes it's more hidden to us. We think, oh, this is the thing that I'm doing, but we don't see the effects that it's going to have on other people um, because we're too focused on ourselves or on what we're doing in the moment. Um, and so I think when he points that out to Flambeau is exactly when he throws the diamonds back down. Um, because he recognizes the reality of the sin that he really has committed. Yeah, and I think Chesterton saw how important marriage was and knew how important marriage was in his Mm -hmm. own life, and he wrote about marriage in lots of other places, but um, he is telling him, look, love is the most important thing, like true love, sacrificial love, and so he actually calls him into an action of love by calling Mm -hmm. him back to the Lord and calling him to return these diamonds, calling him to set this situation right. Um, And I think that up until this point, perhaps Flambeau hasn't um, experienced a situation where he is looking directly into the face of what, um, what him committing the crime will actually result in. Right. 
I mean, when we spoke um, a couple episodes ago about the 12 true fishers or the 12, true, the 12 true fishermen, if he stole the silverware from those guys, they're no worse off. Mm-hmm. There's no love involved. Right. They're already doing something that's rather silly and extravagant. So there's not the same tug on his heart. But in mm-hmm. this situation, he's he's made to be honest to himself. So I thought that was a brilliant moment with Father right. Brown. Yeah, and I actually, in the annotated version, again, there's a footnote. Um, they link to, uh, or it's in the afterword of this story. Um, there's a episode of Father Brown or a chapter called The Secret of Flambeau that's in The Secret of Father Brown, where Flambeau um, looks back on this moment when he converts and is sort of speaking about it. Um, and I wanted to quote it because I think it kind of shows more what's happening in his mind from Chesterton's perspective. Flambeau, let's see, says, there is nothing mystical or metaphorical or vicarious about my confession, said Flambeau. I stole for 20 years with these two hands. I fled from the police on these two feet. I hope you will admit that my activities were practical. I hope you will admit that my judges and pursuers really had to deal with crime. Do you think that I do not know all about their way of reprehending it? Have I not heard the sermons of the righteous and seen the cold stare of the respectable? Have I not been lectured in the lofty and distant style, asked how it was possible for anyone to fall so low, told that no decent person could have ever dreamed of such depravity? Do you think all that ever did anything but make me laugh? Only my friend told me that he knew exactly why I stole, and I have never stolen since. That is excellent. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. So it's just like you can lecture people all you want. You can kind of put them in these categories of saying like, oh, you're just a terrible person, you know. Yeah. But when you do that, it doesn't bring conversion to these people, you know, no. and it doesn't bring conversion to you and me. Like whenever we hear people talk down on us or, you know, do things and it's like you may be right pointing out someone's crime, but if you can't figure out why they're doing it and mm-hmm. get to the root of it and actually speak to the person, and their, their good desires and good intentions, um, then there's no way that they're ever going to experience the, the reality, be faced with the reality of their own crime, you know? And so that's exactly what Father Brown does um, with Flambeau, and it's the moment of his conversion. Yeah. That, this story is incredible for that reason. I, I love being let into the snapshot moment where, where he does convert. So the last line I want to talk about in this story is uh, Sir Leopold saying at the end that he could respect those whose creed required them to be cloistered and ignorant of this world. He's sort of in a jolly mood after his diamonds are returned to him. And mm-hmm. he, you know, concedes that he's okay with Father Brown, even though he doesn't know anything, which is hilarious since he just solved the crime without Direct any Direct reference to Father O'Connor, right? Chesterton's. Yes priest that inspired father brown um, yes almost a direct quote of the situation that he found himself in with him so yeah that's a great reference yeah on that note i think there's a lot for us to take um from that story today and just chesterton as usual masterfully puts in front of us 
what are we going to do in our own lives? Right. Are we going to choose good? Are we going to choose evil? And um, are we going to love one another? So I think that's a great, great place to move on to our gratitude journal. Grace, what, what were you grateful for this week? This week, I'm very grateful for, as Chesterton said, the ceaseless shower of small coincidences that is really um, God making himself known to us. Um, Those things that are so easy to overlook um, and are sort of like these momentary things where we're like, huh, that's weird, you know? Um, And one of the things was Marie mailing me this Christmas package with tea. I woke up this morning after a long night. Um, some things happened with some friends and it was, it was just a late night. It was sort of tough, but I, I woke up this morning thinking I've been drinking too much caffeine. I need to get some more lemon ginger tea. That'll be nice and calming. And then I came out into my kitchen <laughs> and my roommate, promptly delivered a package into my lap, which was from Marie and filled with lemon ginger tea, <laughs> which I did not request. But I was like, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> that I had no idea that you liked it, but I'm so glad. From the Lord. It was perfect. And and another thing that happened was earlier this week, it was exam week at the school that I teach at. And um, it's just sort of a stressful end of the crazy semester that we've had. And uh, on Tuesday morning, I went to Starbucks, which I don't do very often, and, um, you know, waited in this long line, was almost late to work, you know, and I drink my coffee black, so I, like, I don't like sugar or anything else in it, and anyways, I got to school, and I opened it up to um, dilute it with some cold water, because it's always so piping hot, I can't drink it, Um, and it was filled with milk and sugar and all this kind of stuff, and I was just like, Oh, oh, really? You know, and then I felt bad about complaining about something really little, you know. Um, but then the next morning I was like, whatever, I'm going to, you know, the working man's breakfast shop, McDonald's, right? So I go, <laughs> so I go to McDonald's and they give me not only my correct order, but also a free muffin from their bakery. They're promoting their bakery. And it was a That's really so good nice. blueberry muffin. And I was just like, thanks, Jesus. <laughs> I felt like so that was nice. a direct, like, it's okay. You're <laughs> going to be all right. Here are a few things. To help you along. Yeah, some little uh, edibles anyway, edible food. and things. That's so, so nice. <laughs> I'm yeah. glad. I actually sent that package weeks ago, so I'm glad that Perfect. you finally got it. Perfectly on time in God's time. So The Lord Thank takes you. care of everything. Oh, you're welcome. Yes. So this, this week was kind of exciting. David and I are having our first married Advent and Christmas Yay! together, and I really want our tree to last through January, through the 12 days of Christmas. And so I was putting off getting one. The Christmas tree farm that we would normally get a tree from, they closed a little early because they sold out on their trees. And so we ended up getting a tree from Home Depot. Um, Shout out Home Depot if you want to sponsor this episode. Um, (laughs) Anyway, nobody's sponsoring these episodes. Um, But anyway, we went and bought a tree from Home Depot and it is perfect. It's not too tall. It's fat. It smells very fragrant of pine, and um, it's our first Christmas tree together, so it just, it was fun to get into our house and set up, and I love looking at it. Mm. It just feels very festive in our home now, and now I feel like Christmas can come. Jesus can be born. We're ready. (laughs) Big, (sighs) fat Christmas trees are the best Christmas trees, in my humble opinion. I think that the fatter, the better. Yes. Anywho. Um, all right. 
So next week we are reading chapter one of Man Alive, which Yay! is so exciting. This is super exciting. This is Marie and I's favorite novel, I think. Both of us by Chesterton. Yes. Might be my favorite novel of all time. Um, I have a few, but... I would recommend reading it and listening to it. There are There's a free LibriVox um, reading of it on YouTube and like on LibriVox. Um, there's also an audible version of um, Man Alive, but I would recommend reading it and listening to it because I think that the descriptions are just so fantastic mm. and it's such a topsy-turvy little book that it's helpful to see it with your own eyes, but then also to have somebody read it to you. Um, Absolutely. And then you can really dive into the conversation with us next week. All right. As usual, you can find us at um, pintswithchesterton.com or uh, at Instagram at pintswithchesterton um, or our email pintswithchesterton at gmail.com. We really look forward to seeing you guys next week. May you all enjoy lives of wit and whimsy. Cheers. Cheers.